and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Trounson. Dr. Trounson is the president of California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Trounson has been a pioneer of human in vitro fertilization and associated reproductive technologies, the diagnosis of inherited genetic disease in pre-implantation embryos, the discovery and production of human embryonic stem cells, and of the ability to be directed into neurons, prostate tissue, and respiratory tissue. Hi, Dr. Trounson. Welcome. So to start things off, I thought it would be good to provide a little bit of some background on California Proposition 71, um, or the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Act. So this law was enacted November 2nd of 2004 by California voters to support stem cell research in the state. It makes conducting stem cell research a state constitutional right and authorizes the state of general obligation of bonds to allocate $3 billion over 10 years to stem cell research and research facilities. And Proposition 71 essentially created the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM. So I was wondering if you could provide us a little bit of background on some of the early years of CIRM and and its mission. Well, I think when it started in 2004, it still faced challenges, generally from the uh, religious conservative groups that it was inappropriate for state legislation in, in this area. So they had to go through two years of, of court cases for which they won all those cases. So nothing really happened in terms of any funding until the end of 2006 when Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is the governor of California, he provided some loan money uh, to CERM and we were able to get training grants initiated towards the end of 2006. There was a a founding president, and he left in, I think, at the start of 2007, and they had a a temporary president for a while, and they found me and convinced me to go and take up this job to to work with this $3 billion. It's kind of an interesting thing to move to the United States after I've... uh, after I've been working for 30 years in Melbourne, I thought, gosh, let California do something as strange as this, to <laughs> raise $3 billion for, for, for stem cell research. Thinking about it, you know, it, it's very Californian to, to do something like that. I mean, President Bush was, was rather negative about embryonic stem cells, so in some respects they wanted to make the point that potential needed to be researched and determined whether it really had something worthwhile for for medicine. And I agreed to take it up and I agreed with Bob Klein who was the person who ran Proposition 71 and was the founding chairman of CERN to start as president by the end of 2007. So on 31st of December I joined CERN and that started a new life for me and one which I found very, very interesting. The mission was really to try and find the potential for what they call pluripotential stem cells, so there's embryonic stem cells, 
but it was couched in language that really allowed CERN to explore all stem cells, including adult stem cells and, and cancer stem cells. The, the mission was to really understand the biology of a stem cell and what it might do in terms of usefulness for human medicine. And the catch cry, if you like, which embodies the mission is, is stem cells for a cure. The people of California felt that there was sufficient optimism amongst the scientists that there would be discoveries that would maybe help some of the, the more difficult diseases and injuries that, that, that really have, at that time, no prospect of any therapeutics at all. So stem cells for a cure was, was something that was rated pretty highly. As I think I made the point to Arnold Schwarzenegger, the initiative got more votes than he did. How did your background prepare you for your position at CERM? And why did you feel like this was an important position to take? Well, I guess my background has been an unusual background. I mean, I was interested in agriculture, and my early days were entirely focused on animal research and agriculture. And I, I ended up in, at Monash University at the invitation of Carl Wood, who was a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology. And he had the view that in vitro fertilization could be used to help families have a children. At that time, tubal blockage in women meant that they were infertile for their life and, and if there was male infertility, then they were infertile as couples as well. And so at that time, the pill had come onto the market and the number of children available for adoption had decreased dramatically. People really thought that they've had very little chance of having children unless there was some solution to infertility. And Carl Wood, quite independently of the British researchers, had decided IVF was worth exploring. And so he convinced me to, to take a job up there. He'd actually got a war, an award of a major grant, he and other, some other scientists in Melbourne, by the Ford Foundation to explore this. And I think the Ford Foundation thought they might get new contraceptives out of this research rather than a cure for infertility because there really hadn't been any real progress in making it into a treatment for infertility when I joined. But in 1978, the British team of Edwards and Steptoe published their success using a very primitive system of collecting the one egg a month that a woman ovulates. I talked Carl Wood to allow me to use uh, fertility drugs and actually use a system that was much more tuned to animal treatment than, than human because I thought you needed to be able to collect more than a single egg and you needed to be able to time it for the patient to make it a treatment into a reasonable treatment modality and that turned out to be the case so that became uh, a revolution really in, in the way that IVF was done. So I'd done something in human medicine that had been applied during the 80s and in the early 90s. These technologies were applied globally and most of it was, was initially all our training and people throughout the world. So I'd been able to see basic discovery being translated into clinical usage. So that was one thing. I'd also started up seven companies, spun out companies from the research that we've been doing. 
And five of them had survived and gone on to be mature companies, you know, without me because I, I dropped out after I started them up to stay in research. But they thought that, that also was uh, some merit to have somebody who, who understood that part of uh, the, the cycle, if you like, of commercialization. And, uh, and I had uh, independently developed embryonic stem cells. So we, we had them at the time. James Thompson published his paper in 1998 because I'd been working with colleagues in Singapore. So we were the follow-up paper then. We had the cells in the lab, but we hadn't, we hadn't uh, characterized them sufficiently well. But we were the follow-up paper, and we showed that you could uh, direct them into, into cells of the neural system, produce uh, nerve and glia. And so that took a lot of attention. And, and I was awarded, as an applicant, the Center for Excellence in Biotechnology. So it was the first Center of Excellence in Biotechnology the Australian government awarded. And I received $110 million for that, so that was a very big grant, you know, so much bigger than any of my colleagues had ever got. And we started up what was known as the Australian Stem Cell Centre. So I'd had a background in initiating these processes, even though it was pulled into insignificance when you think about $3 billion. And the Australian program really did get off-centre really didn't do so well, but I'd left after the first year to go on and do the research again, because I, I enjoyed the research more than I enjoyed the administration. But I thought, $3 billion, you could run a revolution in medicine with that. You know, you could do things that you were impossible to dream about. So I was essentially seduced by the amount of money that was there. <laughs> to do something that nobody else had been ever given in their whole lifetime to do. But it's just been such a privilege to, to be given that opportunity, and it's been amazing. Along those same lines, CIRM received the $3 billion in funding for stem cell research. Can you talk about your strategy for allocating these funds and maybe specifically cover the bank that was developed? You know, the strategy was to, to initially set up the infrastructure, so build the institute, so we did that. We committed $270 million to building institutes, but we received another $800 million in donation money from, from donors, and we were able to build 12 institutes throughout California. So that really established the, the places to do the work. We brought in the scientists through training grants, and, and so we established all of the intellectual infrastructure to do it. We gave out basic science uh, awards in order to get the scientists busy, and we even had some seed awards where just good ideas would do. So we brought people from other fields into the field. Around 2009, I realized that we had to start in on the clinical areas, because if we're ever going to show to the people of California that had some relevance, we had to start around 2009 to begin translation of good ideas to the clinic. I also thought we need to leave a footprint in California and, and when the IPS cells were discovered uh, by Shinya Yamanaka, I felt that this was a way of being able to interrogate some of the more complex diseases, some of the diseases we don't we know very little about their cause, how we could interrogate those by having those cells 
and then building what we call disease in a dish model. So we had the cells, turn them into the equivalent of embryonic stem cells, and then differentiate them out into their cells, the, the cells cell type that was having the problem, and to see if there were some problems associated with those cell types. And if you did see a problem and you had a control, you could then actually work on a way of, of understanding which gene pathway was uh, aberrant or, or what connected pathways were going wrong. And that would give you new targets for drugs so that you could, you could work into the disease in a different way. And this was a better model than trying to build a single model in animals uh, doing sort of single gene knockouts in, in mice. And I think this will be the case. And so we built a, an IPS cell bank where we're going to have uh, 9,000 cell lines in a bank from 3,000 different patients in a number of about 10 different disease, complex disease types. And they will be available for scientists to access globally and companies to see if we can do a, be do a better job in understanding the, those diseases and whether we can develop therapies that might arise from new drugs and new therapeutic approaches. Great. So um, now I'd like to talk a little bit about stem cells for a cure, as you mentioned earlier. So I know that there's been a lot of focus to move these projects forward towards, towards the clinic, and you talked today about several projects that we're advancing, and, and I thought it would be nice for our audience to hear about some of uh, the progress that's been made, and particularly in HIV-AIDS and um, cancer. Yeah, and HIV-AIDS is interesting because when I started, I hadn't thought about HIV-AIDS, and I have a brother who has AIDS, and I was interested to see that, you know, that it was possible to target a cure for HIV, given an interesting history of that disease. It's apparent that in northern Europe, particularly in Scandinavia and northern Russia, that some 20% of the population have mutations in a gene called CCR5. And so they have a, a double mutation, null mutation, so that these patients don't produce any CCR5, no protein from that gene which is a, a gene that's expressed on blood cells and is a co-receptor for the virus. That is, the virus needs that receptor to bind onto to enter the cell. And so without it, the virus can't enter a, any blood cell. These people with a mutation in the CCR5 gene never get HIV, never get AIDS. Well, they've never, never been recognised as having HIV and they never get AIDS. And even if they've only got one mutated gene, it takes a very long time for them to express the, the AIDS condition. A smart clinician in Berlin decided to treat one of his patients who had AIDS-related cancer with a bone marrow transplant from a person who had this double mutation in the CCR5 gene. And that patient that he treated recovered from cancer, but also recovered from having the virus, from having AIDS. He had no longer any virus, he had no longer any symptoms of AIDS. It still doesn't. In fact, he has no virus that they can detect at all. This looked like a cure in that case, and an N of one is not enough for a, yeah. to make a, a story complete. But, of course, the scientists have been busy looking at 
preclinical work, uh, doing the same kind of work in mice that have been humanized with blood cells, human cells, and they found the same thing that, you know, that if you mutated this CCR5 gene, that the virus couldn't enter the cell and the cells weren't infected, you know, couldn't infect those, those human cells. So the ways of doing it, you can interrupt the gene with a gene editing technique and Sangamo company used a zinc finger nuclease to do that and together with John Zyre of the City of Hope, they're doing that, tend to do that clinical trial with patients this year. And that should provide the patients uh, opportunity to be no longer infected with, with the virus, which would be astonishing. And there's another company called Calimune who's using a different approach, again the CCR5, but they using a short hairpin RNA approach that would uh, reduce the protein to minimal or very low levels. And, and they're also doing that not only in the stem cell population in the blood, but also in the T cells. And they added another factor that would block out one of the fusion genes as well. So that company is already doing clinical trials with our support and have started to get the patients for that study already. So we don't know the outcomes of this, this work yet, but it'll be very interesting to see it. And, and I would hope that it, that it is a cure for HIV, but I mean, you have to, you have to do the studies in the, in the human to find out that whether, you know, that it's safe and it's effective, and you have to go through those trials before you can conclude that. So let's be certain that we're not guaranteeing anything, but we're being optimistic that it will work. So that's, a, that, that's an interesting set of experiments. When you come to cancer, we've been interested in the cancer stem cell. That's the, that's the cell which will continue to produce the malignant cells after you've been treated for cancer, and then you find in some patients that the malignancies get going again. So we haven't killed off that cancer stem cell, and that's the thing that we've been needing to target. So there is some ways of targeting that, and well, we're doing it a number of different ways, but one of the interesting ways is to block an antigen that's expressed on the surface of cancer cells. It's a don't-eat-me antigen. It's, it's a protein on the surface that tells <laughs> macrophages who normally eat up your abnormal cells not to eat me, and they don't. They don't eat you. They don't eat those those cancer cells. So the cancer has been very smart in expressing this because they they're, they're, not, they're not attacked by macrophages. But if you put an antibody, a specific antibody on that don't eat me antigen, they come and eat those cells up very quickly. So if it's a blood cancer, leukemia or a uh, solid tumour expressing that, it'll be eaten by macrophages and you can see that um, very easily in the preclinical studies. Hopefully that that work will evolve through a monoclonal antibody which is aimed at that CD47 or don't eat me antigen and it, cancers will no longer be escaping the macrophage attack that they would normally get. So there's some other approaches as, as well and I like the, the surveillance that T-cells uh, in immunology set up to keep to keep away invading cells from the body. And if you activate these T cells by putting the antigen in chimeric receptor on the surface of T cells, they'll be activated to chase down cancer cells or infected cells, cells infected with HIV or some mm. other infection. They'll chase them down and kill them. The T cells are very aggressive. They have very strong killer cells. 
And if we actually introduce that through the, the blood stem cell, you would be covered for a lifetime. If you put it in the T cells, you'll be covered for as long as the T cells will live, and it's probably six, maybe 12 months, but you may not be covered after that. I think that's a much better prospect than the current therapies of surgery and chemoradiotherapy, then come back and see the doctor, make sure you're free of it. You know, you would need, if you had these T cells circulating, they would, they would, they would be looking for any aberrant cell with that cancer message on the surface. One of the things that really blows me away is the idea that we are now potentially introducing cures where patients have the potential to no longer have to take treatments and, and they can be cured of, of these different diseases. Where would a patient go if they want to find out more about these clinical trials? Maybe even if they want to enroll in, in some of these clinical trials. That's a very good point because, you know, there's not a lot of good advice. You, you would always go to your clinician, uh, your specialist, and of course ask them. That needs to always be the first port of call. But if you're unsatisfied with the answer, where do you go next? Do you go for a second opinion to another specialist? That's not a bad idea as well. But we're setting up what we call alpha stem cell clinics in, in California where we have a network of clinics and attached to those clinics will be people who are independent of the clinicians but will be able to advise people from the community about where clinical trials might be happening both within the network and outside the network. And this is what we really need. We, we really haven't had that. We really haven't had a, a way of advising people and unfortunately some people have been choosing to go to unregistered, uh, unscientific sites to, and pay a lot of money for probably something that's not very worthwhile. We're hoping to set that up next year. We're, we're taking that through our board, hopefully later this year, have those, that network approved. We've got it approved in concept. We've got the applications for the people who are interested. So hopefully we'll make a judgment on who should be awarded these and then have our board endorse it later this year. And that will include having people with, with that sort of background who mm -hmm. can give advice. Yeah. That's great. So Dr. Trounson, the, the continued success of work in this field depends on new researchers. What has CIRM done to develop or nurture young scientists' interest? Well, I think we've done a lot of things. I, I think you're absolutely right. Young scientists are absolutely crucial. We've had lots of different awards, or what we call RFAs, requests for applications. And that have included awards to, to young scientists coming into the field, doing project grants, you know, through seed grants or through, through grant applications to us. But we've also enabled young people from the state uh, universities and colleges to, to come in through a Bridges program to spend up to two years working with the teams. And these people have been converting to PhDs or positions in these teams or companies at a great rate. We also have the Creativity Awards where we give high school students in their last year the opportunity to come there summertime holidays and work with uh, one of the stem cell groups uh, or companies and all we ask is that they have another interest as well because we think creativity happens at the intersection of at least two disciplines. So that's been another fabulous program and, and has, has brought a lot of young people uh, and their families into contact with this. And if you open it up to all these young people, you find people with such strong 
ambition and interest to do these things, that it's extraordinary. The other thing that we've done with all of these students, but I'm also trying to do it with all the scientists, is get them to, to give the, the elevator pitch, that is, tell us about your science in less than three minutes, less than the time it goes from ground to floor six. Because if you can get across to someone in a couple of minutes what you're doing, you become an ambassador for science. And so why don't we get everybody to be able to do this? We, you know, you can do things like that and you suddenly can make all people ambassadors for what you're doing. And it's, it's well worth trying that. Well, we know that you are stepping down from your position at CERM in a few months. Can you tell us about the footprint that you have left on the state of California through CERM? and how this will shape the field over the next 10 years. I'll try to leave a footprint really from the, the point of view of the basic discoveries. So they, the basic discoveries are fantastic and they will either continue on to be shown to be important or not, depending you know, how, how well they do. But you know, we've left things like IPS cell banks as a resource for, for people to study for a long period of time. We've left them with institutes where they're able to do their work free of constraints that might be imposed by people who don't think it's the right thing to do as it was done in the past. So I hope that the Alpha Clinics will leave a footprint for, for the clinical work, which I hope will be successful and we can only be optimistic and not be certain. Most of all, I can feel satisfied that I did what Bob Klein and Arnold Schwarzenegger asked me to do, is to see if I could create a revolution in human medicine with the $3 billion that the Californians allocated for this purpose. So time will tell, I guess. But I feel incredibly uh, honoured and, and, and optimistic about what's happened. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's been, it's been great. Thanks a lot to both of you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.com. .org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFirm News.